Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. I'm here with my co-host, Sean the Sheep Cheatham, after his week off. He, he missed the show last week, but we won't hold that against him. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, Dan, because uh, my Greek professor listens to this podcast, and uh, he's like, why are you called the sheep? Like, <laughs> like, so at some point, we should probably explain that. Yes, yes, we, we should. Not, um, not keep people in suspense. <laughs> It's going to be like a, a dividing line inside joke. You know, how James White picks on Rich all the time for whatever reason I pick on Sean for being a sheep. So <laughs> anyways, um, no, I'm the rich, the rich of the group. Okay. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, we're going to be diving into our confession today, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, but before we get into our topic, uh, be sure to check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, we update that weekly. Uh, Travis Rogers, who was on the podcast last week, just put a Christmas uh, article up, so be sure to check that out. Uh, we're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, Google Podcasts, as well as some other platforms, so be sure to check us out on there um, and our YouTube channel as well. So with that, Sean, you want to introduce our topic yeah, so we'll generally be talking about um, the sixth chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, the fall of man uh, uh, the punish- er, and sin and the punishment thereof. I think I botched the title a little bit there, but it's, it's basically <laughs> on the fall of man. Um, and uh, we're going to be doing it a little bit differently than we have in the past. Um, Sam Waldron has a book on the confession, uh, A Modern Exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And in the back, there are uh, questions about the chapter. So what we're going to do is take some of the questions that he had uh, in his book and uh, go through and answer them. Uh, so hopefully that'll be edifying. And they're, they're, they're still very relevant questions uh, today. Mm, these these are the types of things that until the Lord's coming will never uh, not be controversial. Unless you're a post-millennialist, but that's for another day. <laughs> All right. So um, to the first question, um, is there a covenant of works in Genesis 2.17? And um, just a little bit of background on this before we jump in. Um, the, wor- the term covenant of works is not actually used in this chapter of the confession, so, but it is used in other portions of the confession, leading uh, us to believe, because some uh, want to say that uh, the 1689 doesn't teach a covenant of works, but just because it's not used in this chapter doesn't mean it isn't there. Um, so this, um, there's a little bit of a controversy about that, but um, the question is, does Genesis 2.17 constitute a covenant of works? And it'd probably be helpful to um, give an explanation of what a covenant is, obviously, if we're going to be talking about it. Um, in preparing, I actually taught on this last week, and in preparing uh, for my teaching, I tried looking up definitions of a covenant, and I found that a lot of them were specific and had uh, lots of elements to them, but when you start applying all those elements to the various covenants in the Bible, invariably they broke down. Uh, for example, one of the elements that, um, uh, where was it? Uh, where, uh, one of the elements that was I found was common was that um, there needed to be some sort of sign for the covenant. Like for example, we see uh, the sign of circumcision in the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant or the sign of um, 
the rainbow for the Noahic covenant. But if you go to somewhere like Numbers 25, 10 through 13, and that's the covenant um, God gives to Phineas in regards to the priesthood, um, there is no, no sign there. So I felt that a more general, um, more general definition of a covenant would probably be helpful. And I tried to find some that would encompass everything I knew to be about a covenant. So I've got two definitions here. Um, one from Wigan Duncan, a covenant is a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. And uh, this one from Keith Matheson, it's a formal arrangement between two or more parties. Um, so getting back to the initial question, um, does Genesis 2.17 constitute a covenant? And at this point, it would probably be helpful if we actually read Genesis 2.17. So I'm going to start here at verse 16 and go into verse 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Um, so you'll note the word covenant doesn't appear in these verses, and that's where a lot of the controversy comes in. Um, there are a lot of brothers, and a lot of them are indeed brothers. They're good brothers, but um, they don't want to see this as a covenant because the word doesn't exist or isn't in the verse. Um, they're afraid of applying a theological framework inappropriately to the Bible, and we all we all should be on guard against this. That um, because we see people all the time, whether they be brothers or not, that because of their theological framework, they can't actually see what the text is saying. And we don't want to be part of that ourselves. Um, so it's, it's a good impulse to have, but ultimately I think it, um, uh, we shouldn't be afraid to not see things that uh, are truly there based on our theology. Um, basically it boils down to the word concept fallacy just because the word doesn't exist there the concept um doesn't it's not that the concept isn't there um and if we have a good hermeneutical principle that allows scripture to interpret scripture uh, we can see the aspects of a covenant in here um so for example um uh, just allowing other scriptures to influence how we see things. Um, 2 Samuel 7 is uh, the Davidic covenant. It's where uh, God makes the promise to David in regards to his seed. Uh, but the word covenant is never used there. Um, and yet in Psalm 89, uh, verse 3, it, it's reflecting back on the um, what was happening in uh, 2 Samuel. Um, and it does use the word covenant. So just the Bible gives us an example of just because the word isn't used in one place doesn't mean the concept isn't there. Um, so does it ultimately, uh, does this contain in the verses around it contain the idea of a, uh, a covenant of works? And I would say, um, yes, it does. Uh, because there is a relationship. Um, it is a formal relationship based on the, the stipulations giving. And it has uh, blessings and obligations. There's um, an obligation to bless on uh, God's part to continue to give Adam life. Um, and then there's also uh, the obligation for Adam to not, um, not sin, essentially, to not break the, uh, the law of eating from the tree. Um, did you have anything you wanted to say on that, Dan? I've been talking for a little bit. Yeah, um, with regards to... Uh, that the, the word covenant doesn't show up. Um, I think that that's kind of an act of desperation for those who are trying to defend a non-covenant view. 
Um, you know, we like you just said, we see this type of language used consistently in other places. The Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, you know, if you obey your com my commands, you'll inherit the land. If not, you'll die, things like that, or you'll live. Um, if not, you'll die. These, these same aspects of a covenant that are given. Um, and then with regards to the word concept fallacy, our confession, and I brought this up in the lesson last week, talks about um, those things that not only are expressly written down, but that are essentially implied in scripture we can use as um, guides for how we should live and think. Those can be used um, and applied to our Christian life. So it doesn't have to be expressly written down and say, this is a covenant of works for there to be a covenant of works. There can be implications that are from other places we see in scripture. Uh, the Trinity, I think, being a perfect example of that. Um, and maybe some other doctrines as well, where we don't get this, you know, one place in scripture that lays it out so explicitly that there's no, um, there's no question as what is being said, it's taking all of scripture and piecing it together and using that, uh, hermeneutical framework. Yep. And then, uh, people also have an issue of, um, whether or not Adam basically would have merited eternal life based on him keeping the covenant of works because once again, it doesn't say that in the text. It just says that um, he would continue to live, not that he would merit something greater for himself and for himself. Um, but once again, if we look to other scriptures, we do get the understanding that there is this principle that if you, you keep the law, you, you can actually merit eternal life as um, uh, shocking as that might be sound for a reformed person to say um it is possible theoretically for anyone to merit eternal life and there's there's several verses that uh we could go to to show this um galatians 3 12 and the law is not a faith but the man that doeth them shall live by them uh another good one and it will take me oh where are the notes uh it will take me a second to get that up i probably should have had that up prior to uh is that Starting. Romans 2? Uh, well, I want to go to Romans 2 also. That's an excellent place. But um, Matthew 19, 16 through 17. And behold, one came and, said, and came and said unto him, Good master, what things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. So... Jesus is telling, this is the, the uh, incident with the rich young ruler. Jesus is telling the rich young ruler, uh, keep the commandments and you will have eternal life. Um, so obviously there is some sense in which, yeah, if uh, we could keep the law after a certain amount of time, we would merit eternal life. This isn't merit in the sense of actually putting God into debt with us. Obviously God, it doesn't matter how good we are. God doesn't owe us eternal life. But um, when he is uh, covenanted with us, when he's promised us so, there's a sense in which, yes, we could merit it. Now, obviously, uh, before uh, I go too much down on the heresy train, um, <laughs> nobody can merit eternal life. If you're trying to merit it, you will, you will fail. Um, because funnily enough, the moment you realize, the moment you're confronted with these scriptures, it's already too late because you have sinned, as we know from other uh, places. Um, there's none without sin, and um, uh, you need to keep the law perfectly in order to merit this eternal life. Um, and that's what makes uh, Christ so great. Where we have failed, He did actually keep the law perfectly and uh, merit it for us on our behalf. 
Um, yeah. Uh, did you have anything else on that, Dan? Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's something that people tend, maybe might have an overreaction to, right? Like, oh, wait, no, there's no way we, even theoretically, that we could merit eternal life. It's like, no, but based on how God's justice system, so to speak, is set up, yes, you could. If you were perfect enough to do it, yeah, you could do it. Um, but that's where the problem is. We can't because we are sinners. Our natures are bound to sin, and therefore we always will choose evil. So we can't merit eternal life. And the only way out of that is through Christ. Um, so we're not saying there's another way of salvation because there in reality isn't. But theoretically, if we were able to keep God's law perfectly, God being the just God that he is would have to grant us salvation um, or he would not be just. And, I, and I, that's where the groundwork is laid. It's just on, based on the, the structure of God's judicial system with regards to his law we theoretically can, but in actuality, we can't because of our sinful nature and our fall. And that's mm -hmm. where Christ comes in. So the yep. distinction has to be made uh, between those. Yep. We're not heretics, we promise. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, having grown up, and I, I guess this is just the natural state of man uh, where he, he thinks he can merit eternal life, but um, obviously isn't able to do so that was where i came from you know i figured if i was good enough i'd be able to merit it and it's a it's a terrible place to be i don't ever want to go back there yeah yeah um all right in that case let's move on to uh question number two uh was man created morally neutral what does this reveal about the source of ethical uprightness um so obviously Genesis itself, the creation account says uh, man was very good. So in a sense, we have to say that man was good, but at the same time, um, we have to say that there was a sense in which he was also morally neutral. Um, even though he was created good, um, his uh, nature as, as he was created was not inclined to sin, but still had the ability to do so. And this is where um, Augustine, Augustine has four categories of moral states of humanity, which I think is very helpful for understanding this. Uh, the first category was uh, basically pre-fall man. Man before the fall was able to sin and able not to sin. He had both those abilities. Um, so he, he could have not sinned and he could have uh, sinned. And obviously that's what he did. This is uh, contrasted to uh, post-fall man uh, and Post-fall man is not able not to sin. Um, he, he wants to sin and he's going to do exactly what his nature desires. The Bible tells us we're slaves to sin. We're not able to break free of that in ourselves that we don't want to. Um, so we will sin. We're not able not to sin in that regard. Now, regenerate man uh, is able not to sin. So that's not saying that we're able to be perfect, but it is saying that we have the ability, Jesus has freed us from the captivity to sin. Um, so we are able to do things that are not sinful now. Um, again, not sinless perfectionism, but um, we're able to do that. And the fourth category will be glorified man, and then we will be unable to sin. It will be in our nature to, and our, um, it will be in our nature to always want to sin, to want to not to sin, and we will have the ability to do so. Yep, that's exactly right. And then, and you read that quote last week too, from uh, yes. Is that where that came from? These categories, um, or is that did he actually lay them out in his writings? So, 
I don't know if he laid them out systematically. I just, I can mm. read that quote real quick. Where was that? Um, okay, yeah, from Augustine. And this was from his book, On Rebuke and Grace, chapter 33. On which account we must consider with diligence and attention in what respects those pairs differ from one another, to be able not to sin and not to be able to sin, to be able not to die and not to be able to die to be able not to forsake good and not to be able to forsake good. For the first man was able not to sin, was able not to die, was able not to forsake good. Are we to say that he who had such a free will could not sin or that he to whom it was said, if you shall sin, if you shall sin, you shall die by death, could not die or that he could not forsake good we, when he would forsake this by sinning and so die. Therefore, the first liberty of the will was to be able not to sin the last was, will be much greater not to be able to sin. The first immortality, immoral, excuse me, immortality was to be able not to die. The last will be much greater not to be able to die. The first was the power of perseverance to be able not to forsake good. The last will be the felicity of perseverance not to be able to forsake good. But because the last blessings will be preferable and better, were those first ones therefore either no blessings at all or trifling ones? Uh, so you see the contrast there. Um, obviously, what we will have, the inability to do these things will be much better. But um, that's not to say that there, was a bless there wasn't a blessing in what Adam had. Yep. Exactly right. Yep. And I haven't read the whole book, so I couldn't tell you how systematically he lays out those categories, but okay. obviously the, the categories are there. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so our next question um, kind of goes into an interesting topic, which I think that has been, I've heard discussed before, um, but was, ad, was man created morally mature? Um, when he was created. So when God created Adam, we know he was an adult. God didn't create him as a baby. And then he grew. He was already mature in physically speaking, but morally speaking was Adam. Did he have to learn to, to become morally mature? Did he have to learn to be righteous? Yeah. Um, so I would say that um, man was not created morally mature. Um, Adam had no experiential knowledge of good and evil. Um, he right. did not have the experience of making tough moral decisions up until the, um, the serpent, he had, he hadn't had the opportunity to make tough moral decisions. Um, uh, the fact that the tree of knowledge of good and evil exists in the garden at all, and that once Adam and Eve partook of it, um, they had knowledge of good and evil shows that they did not have maturity. Um, they had their innocence in the garden, not even realizing there might be an issue with them being unclothed. That is until they, uh, partook of the fruit. So I would say, no, they were not morally mature. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a good indicator of that. Yeah. Um, the whole point, you know, once they ate the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, they knew they were naked. You know, they yeah. they had a, they had a realization of things around them that they just hadn't before. And it wasn't bad that they were naked at first. It's just once sin came into the world, it was now a problem and they, it, their consciences kind of, uh, I guess, attacked them in that way. And so they felt like they had to cover themselves. There was just not this knowledge and struggle that they had between good and evil that would have led them to, you know, gain some level of righteous maturity that they would have had otherwise. Um, but I think that's one of those questions that 
we don't really think about very much. We just kind of go, oh, yeah, Adam and Eve were, they were righteous. They kind of had their, their ducks in a row, so to speak, from a moral standpoint. But, um, you know, Adam and Eve were just made um, pure and, and with the ability to choose either good or evil. They just were that way. And they continued to walk with God up until the point they ate the fruit. So, yeah. And that rem that reminds me, actually, we missed part of the last question. What does this reveal about the source of ethical brightness? Um, so as, as we can see, the fact that they were able to fall um, and they, they didn't have uh, moral maturity, what does that reveal? Ultimately, all this comes from God and not us. Um, God is the one that gives us the nature not to sin. Uh, right. all, all of it all of it comes to him if we're able if he gives us a nature and we're able to fall and then is able to completely restore us um then yes ultimately all this comes from god we don't have this in of ourselves um somehow apart from god because ultimately nothing is apart from god right all right um so the next question and this is this is a very important one um, how does the Adamic administration assist in the in understanding the work of Christ? So the Adamic administration—that's just another word of the um, for the covenant of works—and um, we we hinted at this earlier, uh, but um, this is very important. Um, if Adam had succeeded in the garden, he would have brought him and those under him to eternal life. We'll get a little bit into um, represent representation later. Um, the fact that Adam and Christ are federal heads, but um, he would have uh, brought those under him to eternal life. Uh, and Christ succeeded where Adam failed. Um, Christ kept the law perfectly and achieved the righteousness necessary to merit our salvation. And all those that are therefore in him then receive the blessings of their covenant head. Uh, and we should praise his righteous name for that, that he was able to accomplish what we couldn't. Yes, that's exactly right. And and this is actually an area of contention um, that we have with like with Dr. Flowers on our show last week, he specifically said that he does not believe in the imputation of Adam's sin to all mankind. And this is, um, this is serious because that denies the effects of original sin. It denies um, really our condition before God that we are truly fallen in the same way Adam is and therefore are not able to bring ourselves back to that point where Adam was and therefore be saved um, on, our, on our own. So there's a lot of problems with that, but this covenant language is very important as we're um, going through this to ensure that covenant theology is front and center in our hermeneutic. Otherwise, you're not going to have a proper understanding of uh, why in the world is it that in Romans chapter five, which I know we have on our list here, but um, I guess we'll, we can go ahead and talk about this, but uh, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Uh, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses through justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through 
the one man, Jesus Christ. And then verse 18 is kind of probably the most important one here. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you see this representation language here. So those who are in Adam, which would be every human being, are dead, not only physically, but spiritually. They are under condemnation because of Adam's sin. But then the contrast is made with Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant, as the book of Hebrews says, and represents those who are in that covenant before God. And because of that, they receive all of those benefits that are in that covenant that come from Christ. So they're justified and they have life for all men. And we obviously don't believe that means every man without distinction. This is a qualifying all, um, all the elect, all those who are saved. But those who are in Jesus Christ will receive those benefits from their federal head. But the representative is the one doing the actions of the covenant and, and kind of representing or he is representing between the people and God as the federal head. And so that's a distinction in a in clear teaching here that is being done. And that goes back to having a foundation of what a covenant is, a covenant of works and the natures of the Adamic covenant versus the new covenant, so on and so forth. But, um, but I, that's, uh, that's a very important doctrine to have. Otherwise our, our anthropology is gonna be messed up, right? So if we don't believe that Adam's sin was imputed to all men and that uh, we are not truly under the fall, then uh, what implications does that have for salvation? Can I contribute to my salvation? Are these islands of righteousness in me? Um, because there are parts of me that were not affected by the fall. Now we start to go towards Pelagianism, and we have to be very careful about that. Uh, so having a proper covenant theology, which leads to a proper anthropology, will inevitably impact what you think about um, our salvation. And I think we lost Sean. So there, Sean. I think we lost Sean. Well, I will uh, keep going with what I can here. Um, but yeah, having a proper covenant theology is is very important if we are to have uh, a proper distinction um, and understanding of uh, salvation in the state of man. And like I said uh, with Dr. Flowers, he denies that. He denies that. Uh, Adam's sin was imputed to all men. And then you have to ask the question, well, what does that mean for man's state? Does man now have the uh, righteousness in him to somehow save himself? Uh, it, it's a question to be asked. It's a question to be asked. Um, but that's why these are, are so important. So Romans 5 is a place that we see, um, uh, we see in one of the Corinthian uh, books uh, that, that is laid out as well. Uh, men are conceived or born in sin. There, there's no age of accountability that we see. Um, men are born in sin from birth. We see this in the Psalms. David says, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, but David says that in sin, my mother conceived me. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that uh, David's mother was um, being immoral when she conceived him. Um, it means that he was born into a sinful state upon um, even in his uh, conception. So that's very important uh, to understand. So there's no age of accountability. There's no, um, hey, Sean. 
Hey, uh, I, I just um, kept I guess going. My internet went out. All right, oh, okay. good. <laughs> I just kept going a little bit. Um, I was just talking about the Psalms because um, I'm at the point in your notes here. It says men are conceived or born in sin. Mm. I was talking about uh, where David talks about uh, being yeah. uh, conceived in sin, that there's no age of accountability where we're somehow innocent up to a certain point or where mm -hmm. we understand that sin is a problem and then uh, we start acting bad or, or we're held accountable. No, that it's from birth. It's a state mm -hmm. and condition of being human that we, uh, that our sinful nature um, affects us with. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is. Uh, and we'll get into that with one of the later questions, I think. Um, but it is actually, um, it is our nature as opposed to just something we do. Right. Um, going back, I, I did actually want to bring something out from uh, Romans chapter five, uh, wherever I had that up. Um, because I, I have heard a lot of people try to make the argument that this doesn't teach original sin based on verse 12, right? Wherefore, as one by one man, sin entered in the world and death by sin. And so death passed, passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Um, so the argument is made, oh, well, everybody's dying because of their own sinning, right? It's because they sin. It's not because of Adam's sin. And uh, I want to show that that's not a dichotomy you can have yes they are dying because of their own sinning that is absolutely true but as uh let's see um verse 17 um uh actually do we want to say verse 17 i had this and then got thrown off completely by the the fact that i dropped off um i think verse 18 talks about uh what adam actually did mm -hmm. therefore as by the one offense of judgment uh uh, sorry, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Well, that's very clear there, right? It's it's Adam, uh, Adam's one offense that's brought judgment under condemnation. Well, how can that be? As verse 12 said, it's because of all sinning. And the answer is because Adam's one offense caused his posterity to become corrupt in their nature. So therefore, it's both by Adam's offense and by their own sinning mm -hmm. results in uh, the death of men. Um, and that'll be important when we come to uh, Christ because it's the exact opposite. Yeah, and I think that's good to point out too because it's not like uh, we have a sinful nature and then we don't sin as if Adam is the sole cause of everything. Mm -hmm. um, it's We do sin as a result of our sinful nature and those two things are what condemn us. Yes. So it, it's not like you can have one without the other. You can't have a sinful nature and then you're just sitting over here, just morally neutral and you'll be, and it's not on you. No, no, no. You're, you're sinning because of your sinful nature and you're held responsible for both. So, yep. All right. Moving on. This is actually going to be two questions because um, Sam Waldron broke them out into two questions. I think they basically tackle the same thing. Uh, first question is, how would you defend representative or original sin to an unbeliever? And then why is it proper for Adam's sin to be transmitted to his posterity? Because that's essentially one of the main things that the unbeliever is going to have an issue with. Um, mm -hmm. why, why is it that um, Adam's sin was transmitted to me when I wasn't there? Um, they might also have the idea that it breaks down on their free will. It's like, what, what do you mean I have a corrupt nature? It also attacks their, um, their view of themselves if they think they're a good person. But um, that's going to be one of the big issues there. Um, why is it proper? And um, so the, there's, there's 
three points really I, I want to make. Um, first, God has the rights um, to define relationships. Yep. Um, God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't even owe us life. Um, he's, he's promised us life. Anything he's promised us by covenant, he does owe us in a sense because he cannot contradict himself to do so would be evil because God is the standard of good. But um, God doesn't have the right. He's, he's not obligated to give us life, to give us continued life, any of this. So, uh, But he does have the right to define relationships. So ultimately, if this is what God has done, he has the right to do it, and we have no right to complain. Um, and getting on in this, so how has he defined that relationship? Um, basically, he's, he's chosen a representative of humanity, and that representative all those that are in him in, in the one case by natural birth and the other case by spiritual birth, um, uh, they are impacted by what their federal head does. And there's a sense in which we would uh, be okay with representative to sin. Um, to, uh, and I'm stealing this example from one of Shylin's songs, but I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head. Oh yeah. Um, I've never heard that one. Yeah. Um, if somebody on a, a football team, um, does something, the whole team gets penalized. Why? Mm -hmm. Why is that fair? Well, because they're in a, in a relationship, they're acting as one. Adam was the, the representative humanity. Um, so just like in the team, if one person has done something wrong, the whole team's penalized. Well, Adam acting as our federal head did something wrong and all of us are penalized. Um, Another aspect, and this sort of gets into the discussion you had with Leighton Flowers last week, Dan, um, uh, without the transfer of unrighteousness, we could not end up being glorified because just as Adam's unrighteousness was uh, transferred to us, Christ's righteousness is term, um, transferred to us, right? We are, yep. we are accredited apart from something we, uh, we've uh, done. Uh, we're credit as perfectly righteous. Um, and if you're saying that, well, unrighteousness isn't um, transferable, well, then how is righteousness transferable? If you're saying it's, it's you can't transfer the merits of another, um, you're basically saying, well, it's not possible to be saved, um, at least in the biblical sense of being saved. Um, and ultimately, and I think this is the, the most important factor, um, it's for the demonstration of God's glory. Um, while God obviously is all powerful, he has chosen to demonstrate all of his attributes in this way, um, that he would demonstrate his, his amazing love and mercy, which is, uh, not something that would be clearly demonstrated had Adam kept the law or not demonstrated as fully, I guess you could say. Um, so, uh, we, as his creatures, therefore that are in Christ, um, uh, and can appreciate what he's done. Uh, we would rather see that demonstration of God's glory. We would rather God be glorified in this way, uh, even if it results in our suffering, um, than to have it not have happened. Ultimately, if you are a Christian, the glory of God comes higher than anything else. You shall love yep. the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And uh, um, if this is the way by which he is honored and glorified, then uh, we, we should appreciate it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because um, as soon as we start to, you know, even like Dr. Leighton Flowers likes to do with elevating man's free will, libertarian free will, um, at the cost of everything else, 
and then claim that somehow is bringing God the most glory. Um, it can't if it's focused on man, right? So um, God is the one who has to move, has to act. Um, and with regards to original sin, God is most glorified because he is the one who is uh, bringing us to himself apart from ourselves. Because Paul's whole point in Romans, um, Romans 4, um, I'll go back a little bit here. Um, he says, what shall we say? Uh, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For Abraham was justified. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if I were able to work, I could boast. I would have something to bring to God on my own. I would have something to boast about and say, hey, look, I brought myself to salvation. Um, and that would make sense in a worldview that does not believe in the imputation of Adam's sin to all mankind, um, because I would be able to somehow contribute to my salvation because I would have some righteousness in me at the very least. Um, so God is most glorified when he is the one doing the work and not us. When we're not boasting in any way whatsoever in our salvation and giving all our glory to him for uh, loving us enough to bring us out of the state we are in under Adam. Yep. And God, that, uh, that's important. God wasn't obligated to no. love us. No. Um, he wasn't obligated to save any of us. So it is truly amazing that he would do so. And we, we give him all the honor and glory and we love him for that. Yeah. Amen. Um, yeah. All right. Um, did you have anything else on that? No, no, we can move okay. on. All right, so uh, the next question is, how is the statement of paragraph three imprecise? And obviously, that'll uh, require me to read paragraph three. Otherwise, it wouldn't quite be uh, fair. Um, paragraph three of our confession, right? Yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's chapter six, paragraph three. They, being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, and by nature, children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. So um, the issue here is um is it they as it say um verse um sorry um paragraph three starts with they being the root and by god's appointment uh standing in the room instead of all mankind so is it they that are representatives or adam that's representatives uh that's the representative of mankind and based on romans 5 which we've already written and first corinthians uh 5 21 it's probably more appropriate to just say adam is um, the one that stood in for all mankind. Um, obviously, there's a sense in which Eve participated, but um, it's really Adam that's the federal head. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I never noticed that before. Yeah, it's they probably were would have had more Adam in mind, but maybe they were just saying coupling them together because they both sin. But yeah, it mm -hmm. doesn't convey it very clearly by mm -hmm. putting they in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unless there, there is something that they were thinking that we're not, but um, I've, I haven't looked into the background of this uh, enough to yeah. uh, know. And Waldron seems to think, at least in his book, um, it's actually in a footnote, funnily enough, um, he seems to think that, um, yeah, they're just being imprecise here. 
um, and that really they did believe that it was Adam. Oh, yeah. I don't think that the writers of our confession would have uh, thought that Adam was not the representative before God with regards to us. But because mm -hmm. they do quote Romans 512 as yeah. a proof text for paragraph two. Yep. So, yeah, I think that they would have and even for paragraph three, they uh, they have Romans 5, 12 through 19. Yep. Uh, which we've already read. So yeah, I think they have that in mind. It's just not put very clearly. It's not, it's not as precise as it probably should have been. Mm -hmm. but. And for all those people out there that think we just follow the confession to the exclusion of the Bible, that we're, we're just traditionalists. There we are mildly disagreeing with the confession. So we, we don't, we, just, we don't think, we don't think it's infallible. We just, we just think take it's a this. very good this is above scripture, everybody. You know, we just yeah, replace yeah. it. Yeah, that's an accurate representation of what we believe. Yeah. No, no. Uh, we just think it's a very good summary of what's going on in scripture. Exactly. Not, exactly. not that it's necessarily infallible. Right. Um, all right. Uh, next question. What is meant by actual transgression? Um, and that's from paragraph four. So I'll read paragraph four. From this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed disabled made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil do precede all actual transgressions and i think what this is this is getting at is um actual transgression as opposed to just sinful nature we'll go on um assuming we have the time to talk about the fact that uh our nature is sinful and uh, reprehensible before god but um that's distinct from the fact that we do sinful things um those are actual right. transgressions of the law um as opposed to just having a reprehensible nature before god yeah yeah they you can't have one without the other but they are distinct states of being so to speak yeah um just uh for one uh bible passage to prop that up this is um oh what is this Oh, why didn't I label this? Uh, I didn't label where this comes from in the Bible, uh, but this, I think it's Matthew. It's probably Matthew 15. Um, then answered Peter and said unto him, declare unto this, us this parable. And Jesus said, are ye also without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the drought? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So it's out of the heart that precedes these evil acts. They come from an evil nature. It's not like the, um, I guess, a Pelagian view, or this is just a common view that you, you see in the culture that... Um, oh, man is good. He just sometimes does bad things. No, he does bad things because he is bad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or it's just his surroundings or it's the, it's the culture that's causing him to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. ultimately never made sense to me. Um, even, even when I was not saved, it's like, well, <laughs> if you're saying the culture has corrupted people, that would imply that the culture is evil and the culture is made of people. So they're you're just pushing the evil. problem back. You're not yeah, solving yeah. anything. Um, yes, the, there are certainly influences from our culture or um, our childhood, maybe you had traumatic experiences in your childhood or whatever. Those things do impact how you will act, but ultimately mm -hmm. we point it back to a sinful nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
All right. So Waldron's next question is, what is the classic passage that illustrates that, um, oh, where was it, that Christians are never free from sin in this life? And then he wants us to give other scriptures in support of this. So the classic passage, um, and I'm sure most people listening know it, is 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So um, I have seen, uh, I believe people try to get around this by saying, oh, this is just talking about past sins. Once you become a, a Christian, you need to be perfect, which ultimately no one can be. Um, so you're really, you really are setting yourself up to fail there. Right. Um, but uh, you'll note John is writing this to professing believers um, and he's constantly doing this thing throughout the, uh, the, the epistle saying, okay, this is somebody who's not a believer because they do this. This is somebody who is a believer because they do this, right? So for example, the preceding two verses, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not have the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. So verse six, this is a professed believer. He says he has fellowship with him, but walks in darkness. So he lies and does not have the truth. This is a real believer because he walks in the light. So you get to verse eight. Um, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is a professed believer saying, oh, I have no sin. Uh, but no, that person is deceiving himself as opposed to the true believer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, so false believer, the mark of a false believer is they say they have no sin. No, they do have sin. Uh, you'll note uh, John is even using uh, we here. If we, i.e. he were to say, I have no sin, John would be a liar. And uh, John's an apostle, so. <laughs> yeah, that would be a problem. Um, not to mention yeah. Paul or Paul. John is speaking in the present tense with regards to yes. how he's applying. Yep. So he doesn't say if we had, if we say we had no sin. No, he says if we say we have mm -hmm. present tense no sin in the context of mm -hmm. talking to Christians. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics you have to make to uh, make that verse talk about sinless perfection in some way. Um, I guess maybe Jesse Morrell might. Um, try to do something to that effect yeah it did i would assume has so, yeah. a sinless perfectionism but um yeah we denied sinless perfectionism with a vengeance mm -hmm. and um other scripture to support this idea one place i like to go to is first corinthians 5 or any place where um the apostle or the, the writer is dealing with someone who's sinning but um doesn't treat them as if they've been kicked out of the kingdom right so first corinthians 5 deals with um the fact that the church in corinth was permitting someone to have his father's wife um and that's obviously sin but you go through the passage and paul never once tells them they're not saved he just tells them what they're doing is wrong so clearly there is room for believers to have done evil but um they're still believers right david is another perfect example David and Bathsheba, that whole um, situation, that whole affair, um, committed adultery with Bathsheba, had a man murdered, um, 
and, and he may have even lied. I'm not sure where we could pull that, but I, I think he might have lied as well. Yeah. Um, but he fell into egregious sin and stayed there for a while before Nathan the prophet came along and rebuked him and God brought him to repentance. And that's where we see Psalm 51 coming from. Um, but yeah, even uh, great believers in um, have fallen and Peter as well, denying the Lord. I mean, these egregious sins, you know, we look at it and we laugh at these guys, but we're all susceptible to things like that as well in our sinful state, just because uh, we're saved does not mean our sinful nature is completely eradicated. It's still there. We still have this fleshly nature that grips to us. Um, and that's why we still sin, but um, we now have the ability to choose that, which is truly good because of what Christ has done. And because of the freedom that we have uh, by being made new, um, as Paul said, you know, we, in Christ all died or in, uh, in Adam all died and Christ all shall be made alive. We are made alive. We are made new. We now have new natures and we can walk differently. Um, but we, sometimes that old man still yanks us back and we listen to it and we, um, and sometimes we choose to live in sin for a time and as believers. Yeah. And that actually is a sort of a, a good segue into the, the final question here. And that's uh, proof from the Bible that the corruption of our nature is truly and properly sin. So obviously, even as believers, um, we might, although I guess actually we'll probably be talking about looking at the passages, we'll probably be talking about people in unbelief, but even believers do still have that, um, that stain. We are still in the flesh in a sense, but um, so to prove from the Bible that uh, the corruption of our, our nature is uh, truly and properly sin, I get, I, I believe what he's getting at here is that uh, it's still offensive and repugnant to God. Um, it's not that uh, the fact that we have a bad nature doesn't uh, impact our standing before God. Um, and a good place to prove that from would be uh, Ephesians 2, 3, among whom also we all had our uh, conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So this tells us, um, Paul's talking to the Ephesians and talking about all before their conversion and his conversion, uh, they were na by nature the children of wrath. That's uh, that's as clear as you can get. Their nature is that they were children of wrath. Their nature was um, was uh, was evil. And uh, another good place, I think, to um, pull this from is from the account of Genesis. And hopefully I actually have those verses copied out. Uh, do I not? I do not. Um, while I'm looking those up, did you have anything to say, Dan? No. No, I don't have anything well, to add. Well, way to... Way to bail me out here while i'm trying to look up <laughs> these passages what was do you, do you people see what kind of co-host i have to deal with this is uh wow okay yeah. sean all right no no i <laughs> i actually like dan as a co-host believe it or not um so come on it's also helpful that i have a blog post coming out that's going to deal with the subject and i can just look at it um so first verse is uh genesis 6 5 and God saw that the witness, wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were, was only evil continually. So God is looking upon man and every imagination, every desire, everything proceeding from the uh, thoughts of his heart was only evil. It's indication of a corrupt nature. And this is why God ends up destroying 
the world and the flood. Um, some like to make the argument, well, this is pre-flood and man somehow is at the height of his evil and that's not necessarily reflective of, of humanity. But I think uh, Genesis 8.21 puts that idea to rest. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore everything living as I have done. So after the, after the flood, God hearkening back to the reason why he um, destroyed the world in the first place says it continues for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nothing's changed. Uh, but um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. I wonder how uh, Dr. Flowers would get around Genesis six, five with the relates to it. And it's very clear. It doesn't just say man is wicked. It's a every intention of the thoughts yes. of his heart was evil continually. It's like, if you, yeah. If you thought man was bad just by saying he was wicked, no, everything, every, his, every yep. intention, every desire was yep. wicked. There was nothing that was good. And this yep. is talking back about the nature of man, not not a specific instance in history, not about the Jews or, or anything of that nature. This is talking about man's nature, who mankind yeah. was as a whole. Um, yeah. So we can use that principle and apply it to us today. Um, so, yeah. Yep. All right. All right. Well, I think that's all we got for today. Um, thanks, Sean, for going through basically going through your Sunday school lesson. Yeah, no problem. Uh, with us today. Um, it's helpful sometimes to, um, you know, we share it with our church and then it's good. We share it with you guys and we already have these pre-prepared um, notes and questions. So it's helpful, but they're good topics. We're actually going through our confession right now, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, second London Baptist Confession of Faith in our Sunday school at our church. So um, sometimes you know, we're starting to pull some of the material we're using in our classes uh, to hear. Uh, but we hope it was a blessing and we hope that everyone has a great Lord's Day tomorrow uh, as we worship the Lord together. Um, and Lord willing, we'll talk to you next week. God bless you all.